everyone. Morning. Morning. Just waiting for. Oh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we give thanks for this day, the day that you have made. And I just pray, Lord, that you would grant me your uh, Holy Spirit to speak your words this morning, that it would be a blessing uh, to those who hear it and that it would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today I'm going to be speaking about Israel. Um, Israel has been in the news a lot uh, recently and uh, is very much on our hearts, as you heard in that prayer. And um, one of my prayers at the moment is that we would have a, a scriptural understanding of, of what's taking place um, in Israel. And if you think about it, the Bible gives us um, the whole story of Israel uh, from the beginning to the end. Um, we haven't arrived yet at their glorious future, uh, but we're nearly there. So I guess I'm asking, where are we in their prophetic history, which I think the Bible gives from beginning to end? Um, and that's an interesting question, which actually I'm not going to address directly uh, today, but that's the basis of what I'm going to say. Um, Tony often speaks about um, you know, prophetic things relating to Israel. Um, but today, I felt we could look at the word Israel itself. Specifically, how does the Bible use the word Israel? What is the, what is the um, biblical understanding of the word Israel? Uh, so it's going to be a kind of word study, uh, which will inform um, a theological understanding, but also, hopefully, I will bring out some application uh, for us at the end. And I've got a few different sections. So the first one is... What is the origin um, and the meaning of the word Israel? What does it actually mean? Um, does anyone know when the first occurrence of Israel is? Jacob, yes, Jacob's name. So we're going to look at Genesis 32 to begin. So that, um, before we read that, um, so Genesis 32 is the first time in Scripture where we have the word Israel. And before we read, I will just give a context to where, where we're going to jump into the passage. So Jacob, so we, big picture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has spent several years at this point with Laban, uh, and it's time for him to come back to Canaan. Um, as it happens, he flees uh, Laban, and then Laban pursues after him, and then they have this kind of encounter where they end up making a covenant with each other. This is Jacob and Laban. And so that's the general context of, of chapter 32 of Genesis. And at the beginning, we have him uh, moving on. It says he moves on, and then he met the angels of God, which is an interesting uh, thing, but we, we're not going to look at that. And then he sends messengers to his brother Esau. So the messengers come back, and basically they say, uh, your brother's coming with 400 men. And Jacob is obviously distressed, and he's fearful. Last time he saw Esau, things were not... Uh, were not so good between them. So Jacob makes a decision to divide his camp. Uh, he divides his camp into two, and he prays for God, uh, prays for help to God. In verses 9 to 12, you see his prayer, which could be summed up by saying, help, because um, he's worried about the fact that he's about to see his brother. Um, then, a few verses later, he sends this huge gift to, to his brother ahead of him. And it's uh, obviously to try and win his brother's favor in advance of seeing him. And he sends loads of goats, rams, camels. It's a massive list of um, you know, livestock, which apparently would have been larger than many uh, towns would have given in tribute to a conquering king. So just for Jacob alone to have possessed this uh, and been able to give it, we have an idea of his wealth. Um, and I think perhaps if... Esau and his men were thinking of, you know, from Jacob's perspective, you know, if they're thinking of plunder, you know, they're going to come and plunder Jacob. He's probably just saving them the trouble by giving them such a huge gift that they might think twice before going to all the bother of attacking him. But maybe that's what's in Jacob's mind. So he sends this gift ahead. And that's where we come to. So if you'll turn to Genesis 32, I'm going to read from verse 22. Genesis 32, verse 22 to the end. 
and he's talking about Jacob, and he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his 11 sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. Um, just an interesting note. We don't know where Dinah was, but anyway. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, and, uh, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. That is the first occurrence of the word Israel in the scripture. And some of you probably know I'm studying Hebrew and I've actually I'm studying that passage as part of my uh, Hebrew exegesis. And there's a lot uh, that could be taken out of that passage uh, as, a, you know, as a sermon. But I'm actually not going to go into the passage as such other than to say that that is the first occurrence of the word Israel, and I think that gives us the basis of the meaning of the word. And so what does the word Israel mean? And if you look around, and some Bibles even tell you, uh, you know, you'll get different, different um, suggestions. One is perseveres with God, or God perseveres, uh, persists with God, or God persists, contends with God, or God contends, strives with God, struggles with God, that's one sort of way of looking at it. Or you'll see things like rules with God, or God rules, or uh, prince with God, or has power with God, or even God's fighter. So what, what, what does it actually mean, Israel? And I think to get the best idea, we need to look at the first occurrence, which we've just done, and see what is the context in which that name was given. So, for example, you know, the Bible does this all the time. When Moses got his name, it's because he was drawn out of water. When, when Leah gave birth to, to Judah, she said, you know, now I'm going to praise the Lord. Judah and praise. And every time, almost, you see a, a name given in Scripture, the context tells you about the name. And so Jacob, Jacob's con the context of, of the name Israel here is Jacob is wrestling. We've just read that he'd been wrestling with a man. Um, the critical verse is verse 28 in our Bibles, and it says that his name should no longer be Jacob. Now, Jacob, that would be another whole discussion about that name, but basically means one who takes the heel or supplants, but there's different views even on that. But whatever Jacob meant, it says it's not going to be Jacob anymore. It's going to be Israel because you have persevered or you have striven. It, in the Hebrew, it's not the word for wrestled. It doesn't say because you've wrestled. It says because you've um, striven or you've persevered with God and with man and you have prevailed. And you have prevailed. So to my mind, the meaning of the name Israel needs to reflect the idea of the striving, the struggle, but also the idea of the prevailing. Because he, because he persevered and he, um, and he prevailed. So I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but... For me, in the English language, the best word is probably perseveres. Because if you, if you struggle, you don't necessarily win. Um, and if you're ruling, you haven't necessarily struggled. But persevering has the, for us in English, the sense of a struggle and a, and a prevailing. If you persevere, you have struggled to the point of prevailing. So I think Israel can be summed up by saying that perseveres with God. And the wider understanding of Israel fits that because it's a prophetic name as well for Israel. If you think about the people and the nation of Israel, they subsequently did strive with God. Uh, they did so throughout their history. And today, they, they carry on um, struggling with God, striving with God. But if there's any nation that could be said to have persevered, it's surely Israel. Despite so many attempts, so many uh, you know, 
attempts to destroy them, no, no people or nation has ever actually managed to eradicate them. They will always persevere uh, because God has chosen them um, and made a covenant with them. Therefore, uh, they will persevere. And in terms of um, you know, relating it to Jacob's wrestling, just as Jacob persevered in his wrestling to the point of prevailing, I believe Israel will also persevere to the point of prevailing. But it carries on because Jacob, Jacob's prevailing was not actually in his own strength. If you, if you remember, he wrestles, but God touches him and injures him in the leg, which says to us that although we know Jacob prevailed there, he can't have prevailed physically in his own strength because God had touched him. Um, so I think that just as Jacob, Jacob's prevailing was not in his own strength then, ultimately Israel's prevailing won't be in their own strength, but will be uh, because of the power and the sovereignty of God in making them prevail, uh, and ultimately is for his glory. So it's not something that you know, either Jacob or Israel can do in their own strength. <clears throat> so that's a bit of time on the first occurrence of the word and, and ultimately what I think Israel means. Um, but how does the Bible carry on using the word? So when you go on from that point, how does it carry on using the word Israel? And as I see it, there's about three main ways in which the word Israel is used in the Old Testament. So the first being the one we've just basically seen, which in, in the latter parts of Genesis, uh, the word Israel means Jacob, like it's talking about him literally. So it will say, you know, and Israel did this, or he went there, and it's talking about, it's talking about Jacob and his new name. So that's the first literal use of, of Israel. And then when you come out of Genesis, you know, Jacob's died, and you go into the rest of the Old Testament, you see that Israel becomes the collective term for all the descendants of Jacob. In other words, the 12 tribes. And so basically, uh, the people uh, and the land itself also that they're associated with, they constitute the nation of Israel. Uh, so by and large, Israel means the descendants of Jacob. After the third use, after the time of Solomon, you know that the kingdom was divided and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So there is this third use of the word Israel when it uses it, the Bible uses it to talk about the northern kingdom as distinct from the southern kingdom of Judah. So, and the context is obvious. And usually you see that in the books of Kings, Chronicles, and some of the prophets use it in that way, especially Jeremiah. Um, but it's not the main use. And it's obviously talking about the northern kingdom as distinct from the southern kingdom of Judah when it, when it uses it in that way. So basically in the Old Testament, Israel primarily refers to the descendants of Jacob. Once it's stopped meaning him individually, it means the 12 tribes. And, okay, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Do you think that um, the meaning of the word Israel changes when we get to the New Testament? Let's see. The word Israel is used uh, just over 70 times in the New Testament. And to run through a quick uh, summary of the usage in the New Testament, we see the word Israel in the New Testament referring to the people. You know, the people of Israel are used. I'm not going to give all the references. Uh, it refers to the land of Israel. Um, it uses the word Israel simply when it quotes the Old Testament uh, many times. Um, it, the New Testament uses the word Israel when it's talking about the God of Israel. It mentions God of Israel. It mentions King of Israel. It mentions Savior of Israel, Savior of the descendants of Jacob. Um, and obviously we know uh, beyond that. But um, it's, it uses the word Israel when it refers to the past a kingdom, you know, the kingdom that Israel once had. It refers to Israel in that way. And it also looks ahead to a restored kingdom of Israel uh, in the New Testament. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, they ask uh, in Acts. Uh, and finally, there are a couple of special uses of the word Israel, which is what I'm going to look at next. But basically, in the New Testament, on the 70 or so times the word Israel is used, it is talking it has the same meaning that it always did. The 12 tribes, the descendants of Jacob, the people, uh, and the entire nation. And if you look at those occurrences in the New Testament, 
usually the context and the manner in which the word is used, it's obviously talking about that meaning of the word Israel. It's just obvious. However, as I said, there's a couple of uses of the word Israel uh, which require a bit more explanation. And I think it's important we understand those uses because these are the, uh, just some of the verses that are used uh, by, uh, that, are, that are twisted to support replacement theology, which is a theology we reject, uh, which is you know, the teaching that the church has replaced Israel as the people of God. Uh, and so there are several verses that people use to, to, to try and show that. Um, but I'm going to look at a couple of those verses which actually use the word Israel in them. Um, so let's, let's um, look at those. Um, the, the main two are Romans, from Romans 9 and from Galatians 6. So we're just going to look at those two um, particular uses of the word Israel. At this point, I just need to give credit to Thomas Fretwell. Um, I don't know if you know him. He spoke here some months ago. He's written a couple of really good little booklets on, um, on Israel and, and, and that kind of thing. And that's really helped me form uh, some of what I'm about to say. <clears throat> but let's read uh, Romans chapter 9, um, the first 15 verses of Romans 9, to get the context of one of these special uses. Um, just to give you the wider context, you're all familiar with Romans 1 to 8, you know, our situation as uh, sinners um, in need of the grace of God, uh, and, you know, passing through the chapters of Romans, we get to Romans 8, a glorious, you know, chapter where nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then we have Romans 9, 10, 11, which are all too often ignored, um, but they really focus on uh, Israel. And so we're going to just read from the beginning of that chunk, um, Romans 9, uh, 1 to 15. I, it's Paul speaking. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto, pardon me, unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So verse 6 is the, is the key verse here. Um, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So what, what does that mean? They're, all, they're not all um, <clears throat> They're not all Israel, which are of Israel. To kind of try and explain it with a parable, I guess, um, if I said something like, they're not all Christians who are Christians, would you know what I mean? Um, by my tone, you might realize what I'm saying is, they're not all true followers of Christ who call themselves Christians. And I think it's a little bit like that with this word, uh, with this verse. What is the context of verse 6? What is the context of verse 6, where it says they're not all Israel who are of Israel? From verse 1, Paul has been saying how heavy his heart is regarding the salvation of his people. He would even trade his salvation for theirs. And he's acknowledging that many of his Jewish brethren have not received the Messiah of Israel. And it bothers him to the point of pain, bothers him with sorrow. 
But he, he, does, he cannot deny that they're still of Israel. They are still of Israel, but they're not completed, as it were, in their Israelness. They have uh, their Israel by the flesh, but they have not received the word of promise, and that pains him. They have a physical circumcision, but not a heart circumcision. They need the Messiah to be the truest, fullest Israelite they can be. And that's how he's able to say, they're not all Israel, which are of Israel. Or maybe you could say, they're not all circumcised of heart, who are circumcised of flesh. Put it another way, as he does a bit further down, not all of Abraham's offspring are the children of promise. Remember, Ishmael was a son of Abraham, but Isaac was the child of promise. Esau was a grandson of Abraham, but Jacob was the child of promise. And Ishmael and Esau were the children of the flesh. And now we're touching on the sovereignty of God, which is why in verse 15, Paul quotes Exodus when God said to Moses that he would have mercy on whom he would have mercy and compassion on whom he would have compassion. That's quoting from Exodus, um, speaking of the sovereignty of God. So we see that the use of the word Israel in this verse 6 is actually a narrowing of its use to refer to believing Israelites within the entire people of Israel. A narrowing of the use. It, you cannot construe this uh, verse to widen the meaning of Israel so as to include Gentile Christians in this verse. They're not in this discussion. Uh, in, just don't enter into this uh, verse. Okay. That's one of the ones I wanted to look at because that's one of the ones that people will try and twist uh, for replacement theology. The other one is, as I said, Galatians 6. So we'll just turn there next. Galatians 6, the end of the chapter. So <clears throat> I'm going to read from uh, Galatians 6, verse 11 to the end. And it's Paul speaking again. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So the verse there is verse 16, uh, and the phrase, the Israel of God. I'll just read it again, that verse. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. To my mind, the, the plain reading of this is that Paul is talking about two groups of people. Firstly, he's talking about any believer who is walking according to this aforementioned rule. And secondly, he's talking about the Israel of God, by which he means the Jewish believers within the body of Christ. And he wants to call all of them out for a blessing because these ones have not gone along with this corrupted idea among the Galatians that the Gentiles need to be circumcised, as they don't. Now, what replacement theology wants to do with this is see the statement as referring to one group of people. It wants this to be one group, so that the ones who are the ones walking according to the rule completely equate to the Israel of God. That's what it wants to do. So it wants to say that everybody walking to that, according to that rule that totally equates to the Israel of God. But I'm saying it's, it's within that. But for that view, that the ones walking according to the rule equate to the ones called Israel, or Israel of God, you have to translate a Greek word there, which is kai. You have to translate it to mean even rather than and. Uh, we'll come back to that. But if you did that, it would say, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy, 
even upon the Israel of God. And if you translated it like that, it could mean uh, one group, like, you know, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy, you know, even they are the Israel of God, it would be like saying that they are the same. Uh, and that's what that th theology wants to do. Putting the theology aside, actually that translation is possible in the Greek, um, because Kai can mean even, it usually means and, but it can mean even. So then you have to ask, what is fair? Is it fair to translate it as and, or is it fair to translate it as even? And this is the sort of thing that translators will discuss, and you know, the Bible that you have will reflect the decision they made. And some of them, some translations, like the NLT, you know, they will just take liberties, to be honest, with that verse. And uh, anyway. So what word is better or what meaning, what, however you translate it, what is the meaning? Like, what is Paul trying to say? And in my view, the context of the surrounding verses the immediate surrounding verses, as well as the thrust of the whole book of Galatians, justifies our understanding that in this verse, 16, Paul has two groups in mind, believers generally and also uh, Jewish believers within that. That is what the context would suggest. And if we just step back for a moment, what's the whole point of the book of Galatians? Like, what's the key point? The key point in Galatians is really that justification is by grace through faith, and not through works of the law. That's, that's really what Paul is driving at in Galatians. And you remember that there, was a certain, there were certain Jewish teachers from Jerusalem teaching that um, Gentiles had to be circumcised for their full salvation. And Paul writes this letter to refute that teaching. And so that's the context of the book. And I just want to read the passage again with that context in mind. So if you'll read with me again Galatians 6, 11 to the end. You see how large a letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So the important point, you know, that Paul is making in verse 15 is that what, what matters is whether a person is a new creation in Christ. You know, that's what matters. And so in verse 16, he's commending those who have understood his teaching that justification is by grace through faith. And they're actually walking it out. They've understood the point of the gospel and they're walking that out. Whether they're Gentile believers who are uncircumcised or whether they're um, the Israel of God the Jewish believers who are circumcised. Um, the point is they need to be walking according to the truth that justification is by grace. And so if you were to paraphrase, if one was to paraphrase the idea of what's being said here, it might sound something like this. Whether you're an uncircumcised Gentile believer or a circumcised Jewish believer, if you're living according to the truth that your salvation is by grace through faith and not according to the works of the law, then peace and mercy be upon you. And that commendation for those who are doing that, uh, or the blessing that he's asking upon those two groups, contrasts with the rest of the letter where he's condemning those who would teach that circumcision is a requirement for salvation. Why does he seem to deliberately mention, though, Jewish believers? Like, why wouldn't he have just said, um, you know, uh, we'll find it again. <laughs> Why wouldn't he have just said, you know, for all those who walk according to the rule, peace and mercy on them? Why does he drill down a little bit and say, and upon the Israel of God, as if to single them out? And I think the surrounding verses give the answer, specifically verses 12 and 13. It seems that by saying Israel of God, he wants to single out the Jewish believers for the blessing because the false teaching that was going around might have been either easier for them to go along with or harder for them to resist. Um, the reason it might be easier for them as Jewish believers to have gone along with that teaching is because 
they are going to then be avoiding the persecution of the false teachers who were pushing the view. And that's what basically Paul is saying in verse 12. And then the other reason is, it, you know, it might have been hard for them to resist this, this thing because if they were to go along with that teaching, some of them might have wanted to boast in, you know, on account of those who they were compelling to be circumcised. So that's what he says in verse uh, 13. Uh, you know, they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. And so some Jewish believers may have been tempted to boast in the, you know, in the fact that they had made people um, get circumcised. So I think that, um, you know, and then, and then that, that's the reason why Paul in verse 14, he says, but God forbid that I should boast, you know, that I should glory in that. You know, he's only glorying in the cross. He's not glorying that anyone would get, go and get circumcised, uh, you know, for, the, for their salvation's sake. Um, okay, so I've spent quite a bit of time on that, <laughs> but I think uh, it's important to understand uh, these particular uses of the word Israel. Um, however, before I, before I move on, I actually want to make another point on this, which is a big point on this Galatians 6, because um, what we're looking at is right at the end of Galatians, like it's you know, verse 16, right? And he's just about to say his farewell remarks. Ask yourself, would Paul introduce an entirely new doctrine, you know, that the church is now Israel, by the way, um, as part of his farewell remarks in, in, in the letter to the Galatians? You know, something as theologically profound as that, you know, a whole doctrine, uh, we, he would need more space than just a closing comment at the end of Galatians. And you would also expect it to be somewhere else in his writings or anywhere else uh, which it isn't. And so for those reasons, I believe it's very clear uh, that this is a narrow use of the word Israel, referring to the Jewish believers. And he's just especially saying, you know, bless you guys, because you're not going along with this false teaching, and it would be easy for you to go along with it. And so he prays a blessing over them. Okay, looked at the um, use of Israel in the Bible, first occurrence in Genesis, major use of the word throughout the scriptures, referring to uh, the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, a um, couple of uses in the New Testament. Why does it matter? Why, why does all this matter, what we understand by the word Israel? And... Firstly, I think Israel has to matter to us because it clearly matters to God. And, you know, God has chosen every word in his Bible. And the word Israel is mentioned over two and a half thousand times. Two and a half thousand times. It's so significant that God actually has revealed himself to mankind as the God of Israel. The God of Israel. And so it's not something that we can just take lightly. And uh, we're going to look in a moment at some other scriptures to see what, uh, more of what God says. But before that, I also want to say that, you know, Israel also matters a great deal because without a correct or a scriptural understanding of Israel, it's difficult to fully appreciate the whole Bible, um, including the roots of our own salvation. Remember, Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. You know, without a right understanding of Israel... It's also difficult to understand the days in which we're living and I believe the future days ahead. Um, and the study of Israel uh, has been called, you know, Israelology. Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum calls it the missing link of systematic theology. And he's right. When you study theology, you do all these different ologies like Christology and angelology and eschatology and soteriology. And, you know, they're all, that's all good. But... Israelology is often missed, and the tragic consequence is that so many Christians don't properly understand Israel. And yet, God reveals himself as the God of Israel. Now, I want to quote a use of that from Exodus. don't need to turn there. I'll just quickly read from Exodus 5. Um, it's when Moses and Aaron go in to see Pharaoh, and they say, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
And I quote that because the same God of Israel who redeemed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt is the same God of Israel who has redeemed us from slavery to sin through the sacrifice of the Messiah. Yeshua, who himself was a Jewish man, as well as God in the flesh. So with that in mind, what is God's perspective on Israel? Let's hear straight from the Bible about how God speaks about Israel and about the Jewish people. And obviously, you know, with two and a half thousand uses, I could give so many scriptures, um, but I'm just going to go through a few, and I'm going I'm to go through them quickly. Um, and I, I would just suggest to just listen, uh, rather than try to turn to each one. Um, just let it wash over you as I just pick from all over the place about certain things that God says uh, about Israel. Starting with Deuteronomy 7. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. That is a remarkable statement. Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. They're the apple of God's eye. Psalm 94, for the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. Psalm 105, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac. And he confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance. When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not my anointed, and do my prophets no harm. That's what God says about them. Touch not my anointed. Isaiah 49, sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. It's just beautiful. Isaiah 62, for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Jeremiah 31, this is particularly for um, those who believe replacement theology. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divided the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Micah 4. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. That's where the kingdom is coming, to Jerusalem. Zechariah, if you want to read just one book that gets you, gives you um, God's zeal for his people, maybe it would be Zechariah. Chapter 1 says, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And then later in chapter 12, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And surely we're seeing that. If you touch Jerusalem in the wrong way, it, you'll be cut in pieces. I'm going to finish with uh, this, this uh, section with Joel 2. 
Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, for I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. He says it twice. They will never be ashamed. They're about to be raised up, uh, and the world is not ready for what is about to happen to God's people. What zeal, what passion God has for his, uh, you know, his chosen people and for Israel. And this, these verses just give us a glimpse of that, how close Israel and the Jewish people are to the heart of God. And so because it's so important to him, it must become important to us. That's what I'm saying. My final section is on application. So how can we um, apply this? We've focused on the first occurrence, as I said. We skimmed over the whole Bible, saying that basically the word Israel refers to the descendants of Jacob, the nation as a whole. Focused on a couple of uses in the, Old Test- in the New Testament. And we said that neither of those New Testament uses represent a widening of the use of the word Israel. Um, as if to encompass Gentile believers under the word Israel. Uh, on the contrary, they represent a narrowing of the use of the word. And then just now we've looked at some verses uh, which show how precious Israel and the Jewish people are to God. So my point, my final point is... Um, to bring some application to this understanding. You know, right doctrine leads to right behavior in life. And one of the reasons we read and study the Bible is to, to learn how to live um, rightly and act rightly in the sight of God. So how would a biblical understanding of the word Israel uh, matter today? Uh, from this point, you know, we could go down different paths, um, applications, of this to do with doctrine or biblical perspective, uh, applications uh, about the roots of our salvation or applications about eschatology uh, and so on. But I just want to focus on one type of application, which is how do we respond to the current situation in Israel and with the Jewish people? What is, you know, I believe, the right response? And as Christians, we must not find ourselves on the wrong side of God. And when we look at the situation in Israel and also the anti-Semitism being stirred up, how, how are we actually to respond? I'll ask a question. Have you ever wondered how you might have behaved as a Christian in Nazi Germany? Looking back, we all know what the right thing to do was. Um, it's easy to support the Jewish people and it's good times or from a distance but it's starting to get up close and personal to us, and it's not so comfortable anymore. Looking back on you know, World War II and that era, we know that the church should not have stayed silent, but we also know that the people who did the right thing by speaking up for the Jews were persecuted with them. So if you're wondering how you might have responded then, the question is how are you responding today to the current situation Jewish people are facing? What has happened in Israel you know, recently, as well as this outpouring of anti-Semitism, should be a massive alarm call for Christians. And we need to wake up to what's happening. We know from history and from scripture that the Jews are the most hated, most persecuted people consistently uh, ever. And as Christians, I think we're to stand with them no matter what, because we fear the God of Israel. And they are his people. And I believe that we have to have already made the decision in our hearts that we're going to stand with them. Because if and when the time comes that we're called on to act a certain way, we have to have already settled it in our hearts what we're going to do, which way we're going to go with it. You know, if, we don't, if you don't make up your mind ahead of it, it will be difficult, difficult to make the decision in the heat of, of the moment. And I think... The same principle goes for our faith in Jesus as well. 
You know, in, the, in this nation, basically we haven't experienced uh, persecution for our faith. Um, not really. And I think that might change in the days ahead. And so I say the same thing. We have to have already made, made up our minds and settled it in our hearts that we are going to confess Jesus no matter what such a confession would actually entail for us. Bringing it back to Israel, you remember in Joshua chapter 5, um, don't turn there, but just before the Israelites are going to go into Jericho, a man appears before Joshua with a, a, a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua asks him, you know, are you for us or are you against us? They're about to, they're about to go into Jericho. And then the man says, you know, we know it's the Lord. And he says, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And then Joshua falls on his face and worships him. The point is, we need to join in with what the Lord is doing. He's the commander and we obey. So it's about standing with the Lord. It's about standing with what he's doing and, and standing with the truth. And when it comes to Israel today, the truth of the matter is biblically as well as politically and in international law, if you look into it, they have every right to the land. Um, it's not as if we support the state of Israel blindly in every single thing that they do. Uh, you know, their government and their people are not perfect. What we support is the fact that the Jewish people have every right to that land because God has given it to them fundamentally. And so we support their right to defend it, just as any nation has a right to defend its borders. And then we also stand with the Jewish people in the diaspora, such as in our nation. Um, it's becoming clear that you know, they don't have many friends in the world. And it's my prayer that we wouldn't be in that majority. Um, so that's a kind of discussion of application. To boil it down to five points before I close, the first one would be, let us seek the Lord in what he's doing in and through Israel at the moment and seek and pray for a scriptural understanding you know, of where we're at. Secondly, seek the Lord's heart concerning Israel and Jerusalem and the Jewish people. We read some of the verses that you know, give us a glimpse of what, you know, God's heart, but seek his heart for it. Um, pray into those things. Pray for the Jewish people. Pray for Israel. Um, thirdly, stand with the Jewish people proactively. Um, and as I said, settle it in your hearts now, um, what you're going to do. Fourthly, I uh, believe uh, we should support Israel's right to the land. And I mean the whole land, um, not this two-state solution that all the politicians are sold on. If you have any doubt about what God's solution is, um, just read Joel chapter 3. Uh, there must not be any dividing up of his land. Um, and finally, fifthly, pray for the courage to do the right thing in God's sight. Pray for his empowering because we are not going to be able to do it in our own strength. I believe the people that stood up with the Jews back in Nazi Germany didn't do it in their own strength. They did it um, by the grace of God. And it would be the same for us. We have to pray uh, for that courage and for that grace. And I will just close by reading from Isaiah 62. Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land be any more termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth the virgins, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. 
Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish, and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Amen. Closing prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. The mighty, almighty God, the God of Israel. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that we have been grafted in uh, to be among your people, Lord. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. You've shown us uh, the Messiah and given us understanding, Lord. And uh, we pray that, Lord, we would be found faithful uh, to you and that we would uh, act rightly in your sight, Lord, when it comes to these things of, of Israel. And Lord, I pray that you would show us your heart for your people. Show us, Lord, your, how you see Jerusalem, Lord. And, Israel and um, Lord we seek your heart we want to know what you think what you feel Lord about your people and uh, I pray also Lord that you would give us courage and strength to do the right thing Lord each one of us will uh, you know be called in different ways and Lord may we have uh, your grace to do the right thing and courage to stand up for the truth uh, according to your will. Lord, we praise you that you have blessed us so much. And we pray for your protection. Lord, I think of those who might be going out today uh, on the march. Would you uh, protect them, Lord, and um, just guide us, Lord, in these days. Guide us to do the right thing for your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name.